We acknowledge that we are situated on and recording from the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe in what is now called Ontario. We recognize that Maud comes from a land she referred to as Prince Edward Island, but the indigenous people of the area, the Mi'kmaq, call it Ebigwid. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are commentary on the life, times, and works of Lucy Maud Montgomery and are solely those of the podcast authors, their guests, or those participating in the podcast and do not represent those of the heirs of Ellen Montgomery. Squad. Hi, and welcome back to our final episode of Mod Books, Babes, and Barbiturates. As we put this pod together, we felt like we've gotten to know you, our squad, and we want to get honest, really honest. We were worried about this podcast. We were worried there was not enough joy. We thought that's what you would want for Mod to be Anne, for Mod to have this loving, carefree life where stories just flowed from her fingers, an easy breezy genius who would just let her creativity fly. We were convinced that that's what we wanted. But we got to wondering, what was it that we wanted? We're grown women now. We know that life may have a mistake or two waiting for us tomorrow, and that the bend in the road may suck, that life can be a perfect graveyard of buried hopes sometimes. We hope not. But we've lived enough to know it could be. And as Jenny and I went on this journey, we started to realize that we weren't going to find the person we wanted. But maybe we would find the person we needed. So, tie your hair up and let your skirt length down. We're growing up with Maud in I Also See Before It a Garden. As a kid, Anne taught me so much. She taught me to ignore the popular basic girls. She taught me to put my hand up and know the answer. Be a loyal friend. Help my parents in the orchard. She taught me to read until dawn. Put on a weird costume. Try for the best. Never wear pink. But life, real life, got in the way and I wondered, man... Anne, I did all the things you did. I tried. I mean, I really tried. And I looked around and was like, was all that a lie? I did everything right. And I was not where I wanted to be. Should I have just followed the popular girls and ended up in a big house in the burbs? I was mad at Anne. Maybe Maud too. The Tao of Anne was a bunch of bull and Maud was a liar. Why did I bust my ass when I could have just played the game? Then Josie Pye and Ruby Gillis and all those wishy-washy, you know the quote, could have been so much easier. So I put those books away. Anne and Emily and Pat, my dear friends for so many years, they all went in a box. I thought, I'm done with you. Until I wasn't. For me, Anne created magic everywhere, and I escaped that place too. I spent too many hours staring at the lake, wandering through local woods and brewing up characters. I was a witch at one point, and I related to Anne's bizarreness as a kid. She called out uncomfortable truths, and she felt her emotions deeply. I could relate to that. Then, while my grandmother was still alive, I discovered a family connection with Maud. She shared with me her own impression of the family. I was intrigued. When it was reported that Maud committed suicide, I was flabbergasted, so I immediately went to the library and I took out her journals. I was in tears by the end. I recognized her Victorian-era characteristics I could see in my own family, the stoicism, a belief that one should never air their dirty laundry, and a love for life and a deeply rooted sense of self. But through Maud's writing, I discovered her openness with emotion and how she toiled with her real-life struggles in her journals, because in her journals she didn't have to hide. And I wondered why Maud's story hadn't been shown in some detail. She was inspiring, and we didn't have enough women in our Heritage Canada moments. And I thought of my dear friend, my red-headed special pal who sang in the choir with me, dressed up in silly clothes for school projects about Tchaikovsky, my friend who was just like Anne herself in her fierce protectiveness over those she held dear, and I was thankful to be included in that bunch. 
and she knew every book off by heart. I rang up Steph for a coffee date. It was a hopeless day in a rank Toronto Starbucks when Jenny said, You know how Graham's new mod? You want to try to write something about her? And I did. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, from some forgotten part in myself, yes. I wanted to write something about Maud with Jenny. Fist pump, this invitation felt like a last trip into the world that I once thought held all the answers when I needed answers the most. A chance to find Anne again. Jenny and I fell under Maud's spell hard. Maud was everything we needed. She was funny and cutting and loyal and brilliant. She was sad and bitter and sexy and real. She had a crazy family. Sold. I was back in the mod squad. I believed. The girl I was looking for all these years was standing just behind Anne, waiting for me to peek over that straw hat and red braids and find her. Because the grown, sarcastic, eye-rolling woman I had become, I couldn't relate to grown-up Anne. After Anne marries Gilbert, she becomes extremely traditional. She marries the first guy she crushed on, and they live contentedly and quietly, while her children and Susan Baker, shout out to Susan Baker mod squad, (laughs) became the characters to care about. In the later novels, Anne becomes so quiet. But L.M. Montgomery stayed firmly as the central, dynamic figure in her own story. She didn't lose herself to traditional roles of motherhood, or to Ewan. She held tight to her art, to her drama, to herself. She hired maids to keep the house running. She earned bank. She would not abandon the career that she had fought like hell to keep. And it wasn't always easy, as you know. But furthermore, let us tell you the story of Arthur Deacon. He was a literary critic who had it out for Maud. After World War I, there was a push in Canadian arts for us to celebrate our own. Maud leaned into this heartily, of course. She helped create the Canadian Authors Association, and she served as vice president. She would speak at and organize events across the country. However, also around this time, there was a trend to get rid of any writing that was considered frivolous and romantic. And by the 1930s, Maud's CAA was being replaced by the Association of Canadian Bookmen, the ACB. And it was founded by Deacon. No women, no, quote, sentimental writing allowed. And when the ACB started to run events, Maud was relegated further into the back, along with the other women. This was turning into Biggie versus Tupac. Two different writing styles, but like Biggie and Tupac, Deacon and Maude wanted the same thing. Pride in Canadian nationalism. So, instead of working with Maude, Deacon wrote a literary history of Canada he called Poteen. In this, he slammed Maude. He wrote, Lucia Montgomery of Prince Edward Island shared the quick popularity in a series of girls' sugary stories begun with Anne of Green Gables. Canadian fiction was to go no lower, and she's only mentioned to show the dearth of mature novels of the time. It's gross. And also, lame title, Deacon, unless you meant poutine, and that is delicious and fine by us. If you've spent a minute reading LMM, you know her style is caustic and funny, and her descriptive writing about soft pines and purple sunsets slaps. So here, Maud defends her writing style while bashing the popular author and Arthur Deacon darling, Morley Callahan, in December 1928. Callahan's idea of literature seems to be to photograph a latrine or pigsty meticulously and have nothing else in the picture. Now, latrines and pigsties are not only malodorous, but very uninteresting. We have a latrine in our backyard. I see it when I look that way. And I also see before it a garden. Over it, a blue sky. Behind it, a velvety pine. 
These things are as real as the latrine and can be seen at the same time. Callahan sees nothing but the latrine and insists blatantly that you see nothing else also. If you insist on seeing sky and river and pine, you are a sentimentalist and the truth is not in you. This was definitely pointed at Deacon and the Canadian bookman. But why were these critics and scholars so pitted against her? Was it because she was popular, so therefore not cool? Or was there an evening where she embarrassed Deacon in front of his cool writing dudes and then a vendetta was born? Or could it be because she was a woman and a successful woman, fighting to help create a place not only for herself, but for Canadian women in literature? Women like Margaret Atwood and Carol Shields would later go on to cite Maud as their inspiration. Maud created characters who challenged everything the Canadian bookman appeared only to rally against. If only Deacon could see where her work led. Scholar Irene Gamble wrote, An Ellen Montgomery heroine takes charge of her own pleasure and sidesteps the traditional model of male dominance and female submission. Her girl heroines grow into young women who generate their pleasure through creative work and professional careers and who delay marriage and childbearing. Montgomery's girls are profoundly modern in that they do not wait for pleasures to materialize in heterosexual romance. That came from Ellen Montgomery's Safe Pleasures for Girls, Erotic Landscapes, again by Irene Gamble. But whatever the reasons, Deacon really loved to bash Maud and demote her work. And with his influence, her books were transferred to the children's literature section. Child literacy was up, and they needed books for this newfound audience. The illustrated versions of Anne and Emily kept getting younger and younger. These were the same books that had been read and adored by prominent people, all genders, around the world, including me and Steph. And if you are listening to the podcast, I'm assuming you too. Maud appeals to us for the very reason Deacon roasted her all those years ago. A regional writer who knew about rural life in Canada and then wrote about it? Not only wrote about it, but made it seem aspirational. Like here, in her journal in June 1908. As a kid, I could not believe it. I have been picking early strawberries. I went this evening down the shore lane and picked a cupful among those windy, sweet-smelling grasses. I love picking strawberries. The occupation has something of perpetual youth in it. The gods might have picked strawberries in high Olympus without injuring their dignity. Maud picked strawberries? I picked strawberries. I totally hated it and was bribed with Dairy Queen if I behaved, but reading this, I realized I might as well have been playing the cello or designing a bridge. If Maud saw it this way, it must have value. The acclaimed author, Jane Urquhart, much more succinctly wrote, Essentially, she gave permission to succeeding generations of Canadian writers to mythologize their dusty small towns and marginal farms, their daily lives, and those of their seemingly unexceptional neighbors. As kids, Steph and I only read or watched TV about big cities or sprawling suburbia. None of this seemed like our lives. And with Maud, somebody finally got us, even if we came along 80 years later, that there could be an element of worth and intrigue in our unglamorous lives, our unglamorous town. That was something to us. In Emily Climbs, Maud writes, People live here, just the same as anywhere else, suffer and enjoy and sin and aspire just as they do in New York. Steph and I are from a beautiful but tiny little town on Georgian Bay, Canada, called Owen Sound. We're hicks, 
There's a tendency to think country people are dumb or naive, perhaps because they lack some sort of sophistication. But that was not the people we knew. And it wasn't Maud either, or a lot of her characters. They held deep emotional lives just like we did. We were surrounded by many highly intelligent, aspirational, and exceptional people. Her writing normalized and validated our experience, and it was a relief. And not just to little girls with strawberry stained fingers. Maud's influence far surpasses Canada. Anne of Green Gables has sold over 50 million copies and has never gone out of print. We couldn't end this series about Maud without mentioning the scope and reach of her novels, including, most dramatically, Japan. That was a clip from the 1979 anime Akagai no An. However, Maud's work infiltrated Japan much earlier than that. The first Japanese edition of Anne was published in 1952, and this was entirely thanks to another renegade woman, the translator Hanako Muraoka. Her picture is in the show notes. Muraoka received the English language novel as a gift, and she secretly translated it to Japanese throughout the Second World War. Since it was the language of the enemy, she had to translate Anne of Green Gables in secret. After the war, as America occupied Japan, English became part of the educational system. Anne was filtered into schools and homes, and boom, it became the English reader for Japanese schools after the war. Akage no Anne, the Japanese translation of Anne of Green Gables, renamed Anne of Red Hair, has remained an obsession. Over the years, nursery schools and colleges were built, anime was created, all devoted to Anne. There was even a theme park in rural Japan that was a replica of Avonlea. It's called Canadian Town. In Yukikajahari's article, An Influential Anne in Japan, she writes that earlier readers of Akage no Anne in the 1950s and 60s strongly identified with the orphan's difficult situation as the war produced many orphans. We have this article in the show notes. They identified with Anne being on her own and were transfixed by her outspoken nature. She was very different from the traditional expectations of children in the 1950s. I used to marvel when my aunts would tell me about young couples who traveled from Japan to Park Corner, PEI, to get married. That's where Maud had married Ewan. Now, grown-up me wonders how their marriages turned out. What's the divorce rate in Japan? The connections between Prince Edward Island and Japan are deep and heartfelt. When the house replica of Green Gables and PEI was damaged by fire in 1997, it was Japan that raised and sent money to Cavendish to save their icon's home. The love is so deep that in 2014, Japan's national broadcaster NHK released Hanako to Anne. We'll translate that for you. That's 156 episodes about Anne's translator. It was a ratings hit. I know. The translator of Anne of Green Gables is a biographical series. That is the geographical expanse and staying power of Maud. We think about Hanako a lot. As Maud's life was coming to a close, a new life was beginning for her writing. When Maud felt most hopeless, hundreds of thousands of miles away, Hanako was hiding the novel during air raids and keeping it safe for an entirely new generation and culture. When Maud put her pen down, Hanako picked it up. Maud's popularity just grew and grew worldwide. Anne was made into movies, and Anne of Green Gables the Musical has been running since 1965. The classic Sullivan productions, Anne of Green Gables, and its sequel have been perennial favorites, and we know Kevin Sullivan is a controversial figure with Maud's family in terms of rights, but you have to admit that it created an even bigger fan base, and it allowed for many more thousands of novels to be sold worldwide. 
Today, thanks to Breaking Bad's Moira Wally Beckett, Anne with an E has made Generation Z catch up with Anne. This Netflix darling version of Anne grapples with racism, date rape, and gender equality. And we say, about time. Her writing has cinematically inspired over eight generations. Because of Maud, a billion-dollar industry was created on PEI. It's a beautiful place to visit, but the numbers would not be that high if it weren't for Argal. People flock from all over the world because of Anne. They want to see the fictional Green Gables, but they also want to see Park Corner. They want to see where Maud was born. My own family has Clark's Sunny Isle Motel in Summerside. Go stay there. There's a major endorsement from TripAdvisor. My aunt raised her children on that earning from that motel, and my cousin now raises his family on that motel. But would that motel be half as popular without what Margaret Atwood playfully calls the Annery? Doubtful. And that is just one tiny personal example. Working on this podcast, Jenny and I threw ourselves into Maud's world. We researched and gossiped about her like she was our friend. We would text each other pictures of snow on Blue Mountain or a sunset from Malibu that we thought Maud would have liked and described. When we were together, we'd drink a cheap bottle of wine on my back porch and we'd joke that it was no Chateau de Quim. I'd describe my accountant as nice, but a real Mr. Mustard, and Jenny would just know. Who, as adults, go to a library and then two bars in one day to hash out a passion project in Meaford, Ontario? Us. Why? Because of Maud. The journals gave us both the brilliant writer and a relatable figure who had complex problems and difficult obstacles. And the journals got me curious. I checked out Pat of Silverbush from the Silver Lake Library, and it all came flooding back. I remember how much I loved Ilsa and Valency, how Judy Plum and Tilly Tuck made me laugh, how sweet and wholesome. Man, I love these books. But looking at them through my new lens, I also see how dark and historical and gritty these books are. As an adult reading, I see the stillborn children, the dead lovers, the world war, the long separations, and the mental illness. I can see the true depth that was always there, I think. Or do I find more now because I know what Maud endured? Do I see this work now as a moving part adjacent to her real life? I can no longer separate Maud from Rilla, Maud from Valency, Maud from Anne. And I realize I wasn't a sucker to follow the Anne way of life. I was just a little weird and a little sensitive and a dreamer, like Maud. She was as complicated as any of us are and more talented than many could ever dream of being. We've done our best to honor her son, Stuart's wishes. The three hopes he had for a biography about his mother were he wanted the truth. Well, based on our years of research, we told the truth as we saw it. He wanted people to know what she was up against, and we think after these six episodes, you know what this renegade had going on in her life. And then finally, he wanted people to learn from her mistakes. Well, that's always so easy, isn't it, for outsiders to look in and look in retrospect and see what wrong turns were made in a life. But we had a few takeaways, and we are sure you have yours. Maud's choices, or mistakes if we are using Stuart's language, remind us to make decisions based on love versus fear, to ask for help when we need it, and to try and ignore what society says you should do. Do what feels right. Love a farmer. Write. Write and write more. We wish we could meet you, Maud, and Fred, and Ewan, and Herman, and even Elsie Page to give him the middle finger. But since we can't, here is a podcast in your honor. Canadian spelling. We can't convey how much we love you, Ella Montgomery. You were the girl we were waiting for. We want to thank Nola Augustin for being Maud, our McLennan Kavach of Drummond families, Jan Carwana for being Maud the Pod's Diana Berry, she did it all. Social media, editing, and cheerleading. 
and thanks to Tim Frankham for our theme song, Alex Harvey Wickens for our cover art, Paul Spurgeon for his years of advice and support, Kim Moffat for the technical and moral support, and the doctors Mary Henley Rubio and Elizabeth Waterston for their lifetime of research. And of course, thanks to our beloved Maud and Maud Squad, thanks to you for your enthusiasm and friendship and support. Please go read Alan Montgomery's journals or any of the novels you may have missed. You were just scratching the surface. Thank you for listening, liking, and subscribing. Go Maud Squad.